This week in a lively experiment, a controversial high-profile bill awaits its fate at the State House. And the Rhode Island Attorney General finds hundreds more unprosecuted cases. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by... For 30 years, a lively experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. Joining us this week, the new chair of the Rhode Island Republican Party, Sue Sienke, former U.S. Congressman Bob Wagan, and Ian Donis, political reporter for the Publix Radio. Hello and welcome. I'm Jim Hummel. Six weeks after the Rhode Island House passed a much-debated abortion bill over the personal opposition of Speaker Nick Mattiello, the proposed legislation sits in the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's fate uncertain. This week, the Senate bill's sponsor said she was unwilling to compromise on the legislation, but will she need to to get something passed in this session? Ian, the conventional wisdom up there is if it doesn't come up for a vote, you may not have the votes. And it, it seems that way. What are you hearing from the State House? Well, this is really one of the big questions facing the rest of the legislative session. I expect we'll see an amendment in the Judiciary Committee to make this a stricter codification of Roe versus Wade. Supporters of the bill say it's already a strict codification. Opponents say not so much. But the question is, will there be room for compromise? And if they're, say, for sake of argument that an amended bill passes the Judiciary Committee and the full Senate, we don't know whether the full House would be willing to revisit that issue. There's been a lot of institutional rivalry between the House and the Senate in recent years. It's conceivable that this issue could get gummed up. But at the same time, Speaker Mattiello obviously went all in on passing an abortion bill this year. So that might suggest that the House would be willing to pass an amended bill. So So what I think is Senator Golden's statement about she didn't want any watering down of the amendment speaks to how people feel about government in Rhode Island, that it should be about compromise. And her unwillingness to compromise speaks to how people feel about the government, that if you're not going to willing to compromise about a, a bill like this, then what are we doing up there? It shouldn't be a binary issue, all or nothing. It should be what's best for all the public up there. So her unwillingness to even consider an amendment is bad government. I, I think to a certain degree that's correct, and we all like to see compromise. We want to see that, that they work together to try to come up with the best bill. But I think there's another issue here, and Ian has just talked about it, and that is if this does get uh, modified or amended in any form, it's going to go back to the House. And, that, and then what? Then that could actually, by <clears throat> delaying it, could cause its death in terms of the House not passing, even though they have already done so, uh, unless there's something... Uh, ginned up at the very last moment uh, where everybody agrees to pass it. But uh, any kind of amendment to the bill will send it back to the House, which could make the bill in jeopardy overall. And they wanted to get this done at the beginning of the session. The only time I remember it's maybe the truck tolls that something this significant early on. And you kind of get the mindset that maybe the speaker's like, boy, didn't we put this in the rearview mirror? I got other things to think about. The other thing I wonder, too, is, you know, Brian Newberry, Representative Newberry, had made an amendment, uh, Ian, that, that got shot down. Why are we in a rush now? The Supreme Court, they, this could be a far way away. And I understand those who maybe who feel strongly want to get it codified now, but that was one compromise he offered that it would be a trigger 
Now, that leaves it maybe to future legislature. I don't know if there's any appetite for that, but that's the type of compromise that some are talking about. Yeah, well, regardless of what happens, this issue is not going to go away. Let's say, hypothetically, if the abortion bill does not get approved out of the legislature this year, that will energize the progressives who've been more muscular in recent years. There, there's an increasing number of pro-choice women lawmakers in the legislature. So if this legislation does not go forward, you, this will pan, this will play out into more activism and future election challenges. I, I also see this is, uh, if it does get amended, it does go back to the House, this will be a bargaining chip for the Speaker on other budgetary issues and issues that he wants to get passed and wants to be sure of. He'll use this at, at the very last moment. If you want to pass this bill, you also have to pass my budget the way I've proposed it. So maybe we won't see action until, the, I mean, it was either get it done now or maybe in the bargaining that goes on right I, at the I end really of the don't session. see it happening until the very end. Right. I, I really end. don't. Right. E- and even, even if it stays in the Senate, uh, and even if they don't do anything until the very last moment and they pass it, it it's going to be a last-minute kind of bill. It's, it's something that they're going to use because it's too big not to let them bargain for other things. And that's kind of ironic because, as uh, I think Jim said, it was noteworthy how the House voted on the abortion bill earlier in the session. You can say whether you support it or oppose it. A major issue like that, if it's going to get a vote, it should be decided earlier in the session, not in the last-minute rush. You want the final word on that? Well, I have to agree with Ian. It seems like that's... Do you have to? I do. (laughs) (laughs) About the rushing of the bill, that we hold everything till the end, and... To talk about something as significant as a pro-life, pro-choice issue, it should be given a lot of time to talk about, to debate. That's what good government is all about. And to hold it to the end, when the budget is typically held to the end, you really don't give the legislators enough time to debate over these issues. So I would have to agree with Ian on that. Okay. If you, uh, if you have a cell phone or a landline, you're paying at least a dollar extra surcharge every uh, month, and that adds up to $17 million a year. I did a story for the Hummel Report in the Providence Journal this past week. It's not a new story that uh, a lot of this money is being diverted to the general fund. Uh, so we talked about the governor. Uh, what about this? Should we lower the surcharge? And basically, she was very uh, forthright in the uh, in the. Uh, interview that I did with her, I asked her, what about changing the legislation that would put this extra money into a restricted receipt account? This is some of my interview with her. We could suggest it to them, but as I've learned over and over again, that would be a suggestion. They need to pass a law to make that change. And if they do that, I think it would be a good thing. The fact is the budget starts with your office, though. Mm-hmm. You, you tomorrow, when they're putting together the budget, could say, look, as we're putting this together, on your phone bill, it still says 911 tax. The bill you get, the bill I get, mm-hmm. all the bills going together. And so in terms of you talk about transparency, when people look at their bills, that's not really reflective of what that surcharge is being used for. Is it? It is, because some of it is, but it would be more transparent if it were um, in a special account. So why not just lower the fee and tell people you're going to get a break? Because we need the money to do important things. I mean, that's like saying, why not lower taxes? Well, isn't that the problem then? You're addicted to the money. You can't cut it off because... Well, you would say addicted. I would say it's being invested in public safety, which is keeping Rhode Islanders safe. 
Sue, I get the feeling you'd have no problem with lowering taxes. <laughs> it's like that's such a foreign concept here. This is not a new issue, but this is what's maddening for Rhode Islanders because the speaker and the governor are like this, right? Right. They're not on the same page. And truly, if you're going to charge people a 911 surcharge to pay for 911 services, that's exactly what the money should be used for. It's kind of a bait-and-switch argument that she's got going here. They're taking $10 million. I don't think either one of them have the appetite to go find what they're spending that money on. You know, uh, Representative Lyle put in a bill for an inspector general. We need that to see where the fraud, waste, and abuse is happening here. And this is one instance. You're taking money from taxpayers, and you're not using it for what it was intended for. It's clearly a matter of money. Uh, the idea of the policy that the money should just go into a restricted receipt account for this kind of service, without a doubt, is the right way of going. But there's 10 to $15 million that's being absorbed in the budget somehow, some way, that they do not know how to make that up. So if they cut it, they got to find it somewhere, They got to find right? it someplace else, and they're and not they're about to do that. And they're using paperclip and bubble gums now to, to try to stitch it together, right? Well, and I've, fees. I, I've said this before. They do not do what we call a, a, a zero-based budgeting. They do not go back to the fundamentals about, do I really have to operate this department in this way? They just do what we call a current service level of budgeting. Whatever I did yesterday, I'm going to do again tomorrow. Even though I may not need it, I'm going to do it again tomorrow. So here's an example of 10 to $15 million where uh, they should be using it on 911. They should be using on, or at least portion on those services. And where they're not using that money, they should either, and I'm a Democrat, reduce the tax or identify it being really used for something else and be honest about it. This diversion has been going on for a long time through both Republican and Democratic governors. Absolutely. And as Bob says, it is a matter of how we just don't have enough revenue to do everything that government wants to do in Rhode Island. And Sue's right. Government does have an, a rapacious appetite for increasing spending. This is not the only problem with 911. My colleague at the Public's Radio, Lynn Arditi, recently reported on because how well, the operators in Rhode Island are not trained in emergency medical response. A baby died, and now Colonel Manny of the state police is seeking money to get that training. And, of course, if the money was not being diverted, there's ample money Isn't right the there. is the irony if they had that pot of money, right? Right. right. And it's astonishing that, that uh, Colonel Manny had said that. I need more money. Well, the money is supposed to be there, and it's not being used effectively. So if you're going to take money from the taxpayers, make sure it's being used as it's intended to I be used. I think the issue was, and you remember Ziggy Friedman, who was the Warwick legislator, who, who was kind of the godfather of 911. They didn't anticipate every fourth grader having a cell phone, quite honestly, no. when they set the charge. And it was very modest, five, six million. Then all of a sudden, everybody and his brother gets a cell phone. Well, now you're at 10, 15, 17 million dollars a year. That's a lot of money. And Christmas came early for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, came, it came in May, and all of a sudden the, the budget uh, reveals that there's extra money in the budget because of the 911 tax. And I was in the General Assembly when we passed that back in the late 80s. Uh, and what they have to do now is look at how do we best operate 911? How do we best train our employees? How do we do all the services we should do for 911? And I think Colonel Manning will come forward with the best uh, program. And then what's left over? should either be reduced in terms of taxes, which will never happen, or it should be identified as a tax being used for other services. And clearly just be transparent about it and stop pointing fingers at each other and just do it. All right. Two weeks ago, we talked about the uh, newly christened 
chairwoman of the GOP and what she wanted to do, and we speculated a lot about it. Well, now we have her on the show. <laughs> so we, instead of talking about Susie Yankee, so welcome to Lively. Thank you. I know it's been kind of a, a media flurry for you the last couple of weeks. Um, now that the dust has settled a little bit, t- tell me about your priorities and what you're thinking. So our priorities, and I'm not going to change, our priorities are to get more members, Republican members elected to the General Assembly. We have nine and five. And that's not the work day. That is actually the number of representation from the Republican Party we have. We need to increase those numbers. I've hit a uh, goal of 25, strive for 25, and lucky 13. That's what I'm looking for in 2020. And it's all about the General Assembly. That's where the legislation gets made. That's where you can effectuate change. And that is my singular focus. I've had an opportunity to talk with the chairwoman. I've been impressed by her energy and her communication skills. At the same time, your predecessor, Brandon Bell, also had those same skills. So why will you be any more successful than he in advancing the Republican cause? You know, I think Brandon was great at his job. I think he was really great. And But now I think that we have a clear line of difference between what the Republicans are doing and what the ruling party is doing in in the state of Rhode Island. There's a clear line towards socialism and then capitalism. I think the, the, the ruling party is being pulled so far to the left that it's not the same party it was in the 50s. We're no longer the Kennedy-esque Democrats that... Is that laying it on a little thick suit yes, socialism? <laughs> Carrying the national mantra of the Republican Party to Rhode Island in terms of socialism, I just don't think. No, I, I think I think it is. I think that you know there is a clear line, and for eighty years the Democrats have run the state of Rhode Island, and we're not seeing any progress here. We're seeing Rhode Island at the bottom of the barrel. The first quarter indicators showed that we're losing jobs, we're losing population. Things have to change, and for me, there's a better way, and the better way is to get more Republicans up there. You know, for me, I believe in uh, the wonderful system that we have here, that there should be an opposition party. Right now, we're a super minority party. We need to get our voice out there so that we can talk about compromise, because government is all about uh, presenting two sides of an issue and working together towards what is best for the people of Rhode Island. Or at least have enough votes to sustain a veto and have some leverage. Right. Not even sustain a veto. We want to be able to stop the budget process. You know, you talk about the... Override a veto. Right. One of the things that I think that you've pointed out, which is accurate, is you're a super minority. Right. And you're a super minority because the people of Rhode Island have decided that that's what they want. At the voting booth in November, they vote for more the Democrats than the Republicans. Now, and I have to disagree of, with well, you. Well, let, let me finish. Okay. Part of that reason and part of your strategy seems to be trying to correlate the national Republican movement here in Rhode Island. And one of your biggest issues, one of your biggest problems, one of your biggest stumbling blocks, particularly in 2020, is Donald Trump. And the policies of Donald Trump do not bode well for the people of Rhode Island. And you can just look at their tax returns. You can look at all the programs that he's slicing and cutting and all the other things. And you look at what's happening in Washington and they say, Rhode Island to say, I don't affiliate very closely with Donald Trump. I don't want his policies here in Rhode Island. And that is probably the biggest issue I see that you would have to face in 2020. There are some great Republicans that are out there that, that could run for office. They don't bother going uh, running for office simply because they do not want to be associated with the Trump policy. 
So how do you get over that? So how do I get over that? I'm not focused in on Donald Trump. I'm focused in on what's happening in Rhode Island. And what's happening in Rhode Island is it's not working. The one-party system, the ruling party, it's not working for anybody. How do you convince anybody, though? So you're going to go out and you're going to lobby people from Westerly to Woonsocket to Newport. What's the sell for them? to sit there, for, and it could be for the long haul. For the first couple of years, it might still be the way it is. What's the sell going to be for them? So I have three messages for everyone, and I call them the, the M's, the triple M's. It's um, message. What is our message? For me, it's what's left in your wallet after the Democrats have taxed you to death. We tax you from birth. We tax you all the way to death. We tax prayer cards. We tax cemeteries, uh, concrete cemeteries. So we're taxing you to death. And that's evident on we're losing population. You know, you talk about our strength at the national level. Well, we, we don't even have a voice anymore because we the possibility that after the 2020 census, we're going to lose a congressman here. So we're losing our a great demographic, our 21 to 30-year-olds, they're leaving. And our seniors are leaving because they can't afford to stay here. What are your so, other two M's? So the other two M's are the quality of education. If you look at the literacy rates for our third-grade children, they're not reading at grade level. And the other thing is our business regulations for our mom-and-pop businesses. We're over-regulating, we're over-taxing them. So let's not focus in on Donald Trump because Donald Trump is not the cause of what is happening to our state in Rhode Island. That is the sole priority and purpose of the Democratic Party, they're overtaxing us. Do you want the last word on that? I'd like that. Um, <laughs> overtaxing, and certainly the, the taxes in Rhode Island are very high. As a person over the age of 65, I, I realize that Rhode Island is not a great place for people to retire. They, they move out. But they're also moving out of other parts of New England. We're losing population in New England. Yes, we would probably lose a congressional seat. Uh, yes, all those things are happening, but the voters of Rhode Island are clearly looking at the Democratic Party as being more what they associate with. And I, I still suspect that you have to do something more than just um, try to get more seats in the General Assembly. We've had two Republican governors over the last 20 years, and that is uh, Don Kachiri uh, and Lincoln Elm. And Lincoln Chafee originally was a Republican turned independent. I would focus, quite truthfully, on the governor's chair and trying to get some constitutional changes with regard to line item veto. If you do that in terms of a policy, I would think that Republicans would probably rally to that kind of thing because it would be very, very difficult to get a majority or even a minority that is a veto-proof minority that you could stop a budget uh, come 2020. You may be able to be, get the, the governor's chair. Right. Well, I can't because there's, advice there's, there's no governor's race in 2020. 2022, right. and, but move and, toward it. Final word. Move towards it. Well, I think that we're, this is a starting point. I say I'm the spark of the Republican Party. I, I said I was looking at eight years, but I'm really looking at six years. Let's start making changes. Because even if we had a Republican governor up there, there's no one to back him up or her. There's no one to back their policy and their procedures and their agenda up. So we need to increase our numbers at the General Assembly. And the reason why it's we didn't have any Republicans running against. Most of these races ran unopposed. That's not good for democracy. There needs to be active opposition. And, and that's true. There should be a strong minority party right. to, to check and balance the, the majority party, without a doubt. 
Uh, but I do not see the people of Rhode Island moving in that direction unless the Republican Party can, in Rhode Island can disassociate itself with Donald Trump and the national politics because when people vote, even though there may not be a presidential election in 2022, they're still thinking about the Trump policies of 2020, 2018, 2017. Well, and it's going to be particularly tough because it is a presidential race in 2020. So when people are going to the ballot box, and he's they're, going, the they're ballot, going to hurt the Republican candidates right. for General Assembly. The splash. Okay. Uh, we uh, are going to move on to be continued. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, Ian, you had a story about the Attorney General's Office the hits keep coming. Uh, they had initially found 1,300 uh, uh, unprosecuted cases for a variety of reasons under Peter Kilmartin. The new AG, Peter Narona, now finds an additional 1,700. The optics are not good. And he actually threw, I, my words, he threw Kilmartin under the bus finally. He didn't want to say that initially. Yes, and this does not look good. I think this is the kind of story that infuriates Rhode Islanders. I will say, Peter Kilmartin has not been accessible to me as a reporter in recent years. I did kind of last eight years. I did a hard story on how he spearheaded an effort to divest Rhode Island from Iraq, and it was it was a nothing burger. It had no impact, and after that, he would never talk to me again. So I've tried. I'm trying to reach out to him, but I'm not confident I'll get comment from him. But this is absolutely. Maybe you have to fly to Sarasota. This is a very concerning situation. And the, the only positive thing is that these additional 1,700 cases, the statute of limitations is still active. And uh, the current attorney general, Peter Nerona, seems focused on the issue. And he's doing a good job, Nerona is. Uh, he's increased the staff that's required. He's doubled the staff dealing with these cases. They're working on weekends. They're doing the kinds of things that are necessary. And as you say, the good thing is that the statute of limitations has not expired, so he can try to work through some of those cases. But it's terrible that um, uh, Peter Kelmartin did not uh, come forward and address your concerns, uh, but also address these cases. Uh, is it a matter of just simply staffing? Perhaps it is. I don't think there's any, um, I'm sorry to say, overly negligence there. It's, it's just keeping a, your eye on the ball, Bob. Right, it was. Right? It was, and he didn't. He didn't. He, you have to say that he, Peter did not do the job he's supposed to do for these cases. And uh, this is an example where uh, he could have uh, gone to the General Assembly and said, I need more staff, more money to do this kind of work. And he didn't. And so Peter Nerona should be praised for what he's doing. Uh, he's doing a great job, and hopefully he'll get through these almost 3,000 cases in a matter of a year or so. All right. I want to get to uh, some national stuff. Let's do outrages first. Sue, let's begin with you. Did you bring an outrage? <laughs> no. Right. No outrage. I think the, uh, just what you were talking about here, talking about um, the, not, the, the cases that went un, unprosecuted. I mean, it's just simply outrageous, simply outrageous. And I have to agree, Peter Narona, thank you for bringing it forward. Kudos on you. But there was no accountability. So what changes is he actually going to make to make sure that this never happens again? Right. That and is part of that is the doubling of the staffing, which you talked about. But, we'll, you know, time will tell. Right. We'll have to tell. see. And we always used to talk in television about putting a face on the story. I'm sure there's you could find many, many people who are like, I'm waiting for this case to be prosecuted. What happened? Yeah. Right? But, you know, talking about outrage, we, we're headed into uh, Memorial Day. And one of the good things that we really do well here in Rhode Island is we, we appreciate our veterans. So we used to put these markers. So when the people went to put flags in the graves, there was a marker and they stood up straight. It is absolutely beautiful. But 
They're not doing that this year. There's no money in the budget for that. It's a minimal, miscule, tiny amount of money. They, they charge a dollar for scrap metal for that. To me, that's outrageous. Like, we, sh we say that we support our veterans, and here's just one way that we could support them, and yet there's no money in the budget for 30 of these little... Uh, little placards that we put in the ground, they want them to put stickers on the, the graves mm. instead of putting in there. I think that's outrageous. Okay, thank you. Ian, what do you have? Jim, I'm going to recycle one of my older outrages because it's very pertinent in the aftermath of the Mueller report. This is how there used to be a collective recognition in the U.S. that Russia was not a friend of the U.S. And whether you support President Trump or whether you dislike him, we know that Russia meddled in the most recent presidential election. That has got to be a cause for concern. But unfortunately, views of that break down along partisan lines, and that's an outrage. Bob, what do you have? Uh, really, two. Uh, one is about my hometown of Pawtucket, uh, and that is I'm outraged that by now we have not settled the issue for Hasbro, uh, whether it's uh, they're moving to Providence or staying in Pawtucket. But now, all of a sudden, on the verge of all this, we now hear that Charlie Baker and his new director of uh, commerce and economic development in, in Massachusetts are trying to lure Hasbro from Pawtucket up to Boston. Uh, where is, is our Commerce Secretary here in the state of Rhode Island? Where is the governor making sure that there's a deal that's finalized? This has been lingering for far too long. This should be settled and resolved because that's 1,500 jobs that we should be depending upon in Rhode Island that could be lost to Boston just because we're now sitting on our hands. And that's just not right. It's outrageous we haven't resolved this thing for Hasbro, and I hope that we do it soon. Okay. The report that we've all been waiting for, the redacted version of the full report, came out yesterday. We're taping on a Friday. And uh, the AG caught a little bit of flack, by, uh, Mr. Barr, for kind of doing the pregame show before the release. You can discuss that back and forth. The president is still saying, look, it's a, it's a victory lap for him. As we begin to look a little bit more, what I find hi ironic or maybe a twist is that a lot of his uh, closest confidence saved him from obstruction. They didn't follow through on his Order. So I'm just curious, as, as you look back at what happened yesterday, what your thought is about the release and where we go from here. So where do we go from here? It's been two years. It's been $25 million of taxpayer dollars. It's been 19 attorneys. It's been 40 different FBI forensics attorneys. It was probably a good process for democracy to figure out, yes, did, did the Russians meddle in our election? But now that it's been done and what has been found, no collusion, no obstruction, it's time to move forward. The Democrats in 2017 and 2018 and right before the report came out said we have to agree with whatever Bob Mueller has found. Well, he found no collusion, no obstruction. It's time to move forward. But I do agree with Ian. You know, there was Russian meddling. And I think Mitt Romney talked about it when he ran for president against President Obama, one of the biggest threats to the United States is Russia. Why are we ignoring that? So, so the Democrats in Congress have to make a decision. And Nancy Pelosi kind of set the table for this. She hadn't seen the report yet. Do we focus on the 2020 election because it's going to be here shortly? Or do they start picking some of this report apart? Which way do you think they're going to go? I, I, it may be actually both. It may be they just start picking the report apart. And, and I think it's outrageous that we're thinking about, oh, let's move on. I, I read a, a good portion of that report last evening. Uh, I skimmed through the entire report. I read the highlights and I read some of the details. I found it outrageous, absolutely outrageous, that the President of the United States was saved by his own staff telling him, we, you can't do what you're telling us to do because it will be obstruction of justice. 
If he had his way, he would have done that. I, I think the Democrats are right in asking for the full report and seeing some of the underlying evidence and information because even in um, Barr's comments as well as Mueller's report, he said, while we haven't found anything, we have not found anything to exonerate the president of wrongdoing. Uh, that really puts it up in the air. Do I wish it were over? 22 months, you're right. It's a long time, and I wish it was much shorter. I wish it would be concluded quickly. I think most Americans want it to be concluded. But there's just too much wrong going on here in this presidency, and this should be examined. That's part of the responsibility of Congress is to, to be the checks and balance. 30 seconds. President Trump is not out of the woods. There are 14 separate investigations that are ongoing, so we can hear Republicans and Democrats like my friends here debate the findings of the Mueller report, but this is hardly the final chapter here. Okay, to be continued. Folks, we'll be here next week. We thank you for joining us. Uh, th- Sue, welcome and thank Thanks. you. We'll have you back. Bob, good to have you back. Are you really over 65? Is that true? That's a revelation. That's a revelation. And Ian, thank you. And folks, if you don't catch us on Friday or Sunday, you can always watch us on YouTube, Facebook, or where you get your favorite podcast. So take Lively with you. We hope you have a great weekend. A Lively Experiment return next week. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For 30 years, A Lively Experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. 